Hey guys, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 194. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now we do have a question and answer episode coming up for you. And Jack, I'm going to hit you up with this first question, which is really a multitude of questions because on today's episode, we have a number of people interested about cardio. We like to say cardio, not cardi no. <laughs> I know some people like to say cardi no, but we're the type of people that say cardio dependio. <laughs> so this one is asking as coaches, how do you choose to implement cardio? What type of cardio do we do ourselves? And also, when weight plateaus, do we decrease food, do we increase cardio, or a combination of both? So, Jack, when it comes to cardio, what are your thoughts if someone's, you know, trying to get into an energy deficit, trying to lose some weight? Yay, nay, it depends. Yeah, so I think it, it really does depend, uh, just like many things in, in this world of training and nutrition. And depends on, on, on a lot of variables, to be honest, like even someone might be able to lose weight quite easily on, on food alone, but they might just genuinely enjoy doing cardio. In addition to that, maybe they like going on runs or they have a fairly active lifestyle and they go for hikes on the weekend because technically that's cardio, even though it might not be structured cardio. Mm. And then alternatively, you might have some people who genuine, like a very small human beings and the amount of food that they need to eat to create the necessary deficit to have sustained weight loss is very low, like maybe sub 1500 calories per day. And therefore they might want to do some cardio to either speed up the process or allow them to eat a little more food while achieving the same rate of loss. So, um, it's again, those are a number of different scenarios already, but say, let's say in, in a comp prep, or just a, in the majority of situations, I usually start a weight loss phase uh, with a threshold of steps and use steps as sort of just a minimum threshold of daily activity. And I'll push up steps a little bit if necessary, but typically steps will remain very similar because there is definitely a point of diminishing returns with steps where you do more steps, but doesn't really correlate to too much meaningful additional energy expenditure. So at that point, I might incorporate some additional cardio if uh, we don't want to push down food any further, because I think especially in a comp wrap, like there is a trade off between, okay, you're already on low food. So is decreasing your food further going to just make you feel crap essentially because like some people can just push through low food but there begins a bit there begins to be a point where you're on such low food that it's really just not a fun place it's not a fun environment to be in when the amount of food that you're eating is so poor so it's it's more it makes sense to do some additional cardio Mm. uh, to have more food at your disposal yeah i think it would be a combination of this is an unpleasant amount of food in terms of I really can't feel satiated after any meal. You could say that you are on low-key pathetic back rows. I think there we're probably talking about, let's say, a very small female trying to get into competition shape, maybe sub 45 kilos. Realistically, her food might have to dip under 1200 calories, 1100 calories, right? Because she's trying to create an energy deficit and she's already such a small person 
But if you're trying to hit that amount of calories and still have sufficient protein in there, you're really looking at maybe like 30 to 35 grams of fat per day, maybe south of 100 grams of carbs. So one, it's not a significant amount of food, even if you'd had every food volume hack in the book, but also you could run into issues where it's like, this is legitimately not enough calories if we just keep taking calories and food away for you to be adequately nourished. Like Mm. if you're dramatically decreasing dietary fat, like how is someone going to get in enough essential fatty acids? And also if you're dramatically decreasing carbs, how is someone perhaps going to get in a sufficient amount of dietary fiber into their diet? And also like hit just core food groups in terms of like getting adequate calcium in during the day. All of these little things, you really need to play a role. So it comes to a point where it's like, if we just keep taking away your food and it's almost like get letting ego get the better of you because you want to have a cardi no prep or a cardi no dieting phase, ugh, man, you could really be risking becoming malnourished. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Depends on how long the, the dieting phase is, but mm. I think that even people with higher nutrient or higher caloric intakes, they still run the risk of being malnourished because they don't have a great diet to begin mm. with, at least the average Australian or the, the average American. But to, I mean, fortunately, the average Australian doesn't listen to our podcast. Mm. And in terms of what cardio modality we choose, uh, typically I choose something that is going to interfere least of all with resistance training, but I also factor in the desire of what the individual wants to do as well. So for example, the Stairmaster, it's not really something that I would typically like giving to clients, but some clients genuinely just like doing the Stairmaster. And if that's going to make them have a more positive outlook on cardio, then then I'll allow them to do that or let them do that. And But typically it'll be some, something fairly steady state, getting the heart rate up like a, roughly around like the 130 to 140 beats per minute and because there's not much point doing cardio if it's literally the same heart rate as walking mm. you need to ideally get the heart rate up a little bit more and i t- typically go for the the bike or maybe a faster inclined treadmill walk but I think the bike is probably my favorite. Yeah, it really depends on the client. And even coming back to what you were talking about before with step count, you know, initially trying to just get someone walking and moving a little bit more during the day, even that reaches a point with some people's schedules where it's like, it's legitimately not feasible to just keep walking more and more. And it's not even the case of someone's walking over 15,000 steps. We're talking about some people legitimately struggle to get over the 10,000 step mark just with Try their- 6,000. <laughs> yes, well, yeah, with 6,000. I've seen some atrocious step counts. I'm like, do you even go to the bathroom? Mm. <laughs> like even walking around the house, man, like how is it like sub 2,000? But of course, every circumstance is different, but there are legitimately cases where people are like, you know, I commute to work. I have a very sedentary job. I don't necessarily live in an environment that's very nice to walk in. I live in a one bedroom apartment. So even if I am trying to get steps around my apartment, it's like there's such a small space for it. And someone there who it's like, I have to take these big chunks out of my day in order to go out for walks. If it's the case of you're trying to just create an energy deficit, but you want to get a bit more bang for your buck and time is really a factor, 
I think that's where cardio is fantastic because you are going to get more bang for your buck in terms of caloric burn per unit of time. And I'm personally actually a pretty big fan of the Stairmaster, especially, you know, if a client's on board, because it is one of the best cardio machines that really does give you a good bang for your buck in terms of that caloric burn per minute. Yeah. And I guess it does bring with it a bit of additional fatigue, but it's up to the coach and the client to assess how much fatigue that is and whether it dips into training sessions Mm. or not. Yeah, but haven't you heard, Jack? You know, if you add in a kickback or two, it actually helps Mm. grow the glutes. Yeah, bring out the (laughs) glute lines as well. (laughs) Those uh, roped hamstrings, if you know, you know. Mm. (laughs) But yeah, I think it really just comes down to, obviously, the client, their individual circumstance, and just trying to create that net energy deficit. It's going to come down to people's schedule. It's going to come down to their total daily caloric intake. It's going to come down to whether or not they want to introduce more cardio. Someone could even be on what you might deem as a decent amount of food, but they genuinely just enjoy doing cardiovascular work because it just makes them feel really good. Everyone knows what it feels like to have that post runner's high or to do like a hit class with your friends and afterward you're just like, man, that was tough, but I just, I feel awesome because of it. So people love that feeling. That's probably why on this planet, there's far more endurance athletes than there are bodybuilders, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, potentially. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. But I guess that's our take. And I guess to finish off, Jack, what type of cardio do we do during our preps? So at this point, I've never incorporated any additional cardio into prep other than steps. I think the highest my step count got was probably around like 16,000 each day. And that was that was a bit of a chore to get done. I will be interested to see what happens this coming prep. I don't, I don't, I see it maybe getting to 15,000, probably not above that. But I also don't see us incorporating cardio again, because I think my food will be able to handle the deficit for us plus it's not like i have to lose a lot i don't have to i'm not on a tight schedule when it comes to losing like a kilo each week Mm. it's going to be a half a kilo approximately each week Mm. maybe even a little less what about as a bodybuilder just from a cardio respiratory fitness standpoint because there are a number of bodybuilders out there and i know you've even experimented with it in the past where in your improvement season, you'll introduce some cardio just to make sure that you do have good cardio respiratory fitness. So I think, yeah, that's the, the main aspect of it is improving your cardiovascular health. And I think it mainly comes down to if the individual is willing to do it and if they need to do it. Mm. Because there's no doubt that doing more endurance-based work will benefit your cardio system but it's up to yeah it's up to the individual it's not something that i necessarily prescribe it's not something that my coach prescribes to me and i think first of all assessing cardiovascular health though would be important mm. but yeah i don't i don't think there's an exact answer to that yeah mm. maybe we're talking a little bit more about the enhanced side of things where people really mm-hmm. want to be staying on top of like their blood pressure and everything of that nature 
But also cardio can go one of two ways. You know, you can do a little bit of cardio and then afterward it can actually help to enhance your appetite so that if you're sedentary and you're also having to eat a high amount of food, if you drip feed in a little bit of cardio and yeah, sure, it will burn calories, obviously, but let's say that you'd burn 150 to 200 calories spinning over on a bike that might give you enhanced appetite cues that you then want to eat a meal that's 500 to 600 calories. So there you're in a net calorie surplus of 350 to 450 calories. So that would be a win. But on the flip side too, some people like to put it into dieting phases and preps because it can also be a very acute appetite suppressant. And also it helps to fill the time, you know, Mm. like if you can wake up first thing in the morning and also, you know, when you're dieting, often you wake up a little bit earlier, even earlier than the roosters, right? The sun's not even up yet. And you're like, man, it would be very foolish to have my breakfast at 4.30 a.m. Better try to push it out to maybe 7 a.m. You want something to do with that time. So if you want to put in some cardio in that time gap, or if you want to go for a walk in that time gap, that can also be very strategic too. So it can go either way, but it just, it, it depends. Mm -hmm. All right. This next one. Are you interested in optimizing your nutrition, training, or physique? If so, head on over to our website and explore our coaching services. We have options for everyone, regardless of whether or not you want to compete. Tap the link in the show notes below or head on over to our website, thebodybuildingdietitians.com to inquire now. Do you guys have different calories slash macros and meals on training days versus non-training days? So depending on whether or not, Jack, you're hitting up a workout or you're at home and it's a rest day, do you change up your food and your macros and your calories? So I do change my calories slash macros, slightly less protein, slightly more fat and quite a lot less carbs. And I don't actually change my food though. It pretty much remains the same, just slightly less quantities and no intra workout. Mm. So yeah, quite a simple answer for me. I want to hear numbers, my man. (laughs) Give me some juicy deets. So it's about a hundred grams of carbs less, about 25 grams of protein less and 10 grams of fat more on a rest day. Mm. So the calories there? Yeah, so I think uh, that equates to roughly 410 calories less on a rest day. But there's no significant math that goes into that. It's just approximately this amount of calories less. It's not like we're factoring in the additional energy that I expend on a rest day. I think it's roughly just that amount less. We've never really delved into the weeds in terms of monitoring my energy expenditure. We're just kind of Naturally, I expend more energy on a training day. So we bring down the calories a little bit lower on on the rest day. Mm. And I know from history as well that if the calories are matched, my weight really does fluctuate considerably after the rest day. So I have many, most of my clients, like if they do track macros, then they're on the same macros on their rest days the majority of the time because they don't really have an issue with uh, significant fluctuations. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad you clarified that because that's what I was going to ask you, whether or not you and AJ have just been doing that from the start with the prediction of Jack trains insanely hard for a number of hours, five days per week. And, you know, just given your job role and, you know, we go out for a dog walk on your rest days, you're not probably burning nearly as many calories. Like that would be- I still do 10 to 12,000 steps a day. Yeah, but what I'm trying to say is it's, 
almost you guys almost estimated that it wouldn't have been as high of a caloric burn but it's cool that you guys obviously then documented prior to making that decision that no if we're eating the exact same amount every single day on these very active days versus moderately active days your weight climbs at a rate that you guys wouldn't deem as ideal Mm. yeah it would be quite a big jump Mm. even now after some rest days i get still like a 500 gram jump sometimes and i think that's as you said just associated with with training quite hard and sweating a lot and being in the gym for a long time like three hours yeah so i think if you guys are going to make that decision whether it's just for yourself or you're working alongside a coach whether or not you're going to change your calorie intake on a rest day versus a training day it would be pretty strategic and intelligent to have some data under your belt and then to say okay why am i justifying this decision because i think in your case too it's because we're talking about yeah over 400 calories there it's not the average person who might be dropping their calories by let's say like 10 grams of carbs or something like that right like we're Mm. we're talking hundreds of calories there burnt through a resistance training session or not because for most people if they're not spending that additional time in the gym they and they follow a similar routine then they might spend that additional time doing something else running some sort of other errand they're like oh i don't go to the gym on this day so i'm going to go to the grocery store and i'm gonna run around to the post office and do little things right you end up actually being fairly active on your feet during that time you would have been being active in the gym and for most people who aren't eating jack radford smith calories everything kind of balances out. So it's kind of just really simplistic to keep things pretty similar. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, don't change it if it doesn't need to be changed. Like if you are currently eating the same quantity of food every day and your weight isn't jumping up considerably, then you can keep that the same. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The only time that generally I will maybe modify my client's daily intake, whether it's on a training day versus a rest day, is for people who train very early in the morning and then they are accustomed to having some sort of pre-workout or intra-workout carbohydrate. So let's say that someone, they train at like 4 a.m. every single morning. They don't really have much of an appetite, but just to make sure that their training performance is supported, they might be drinking 25 grams worth of carbohydrates from an intra-workout carbohydrate drink during their session. On a rest day, you know, I'm not gonna ask them to wake up first thing in the morning and drink that Gatorade. (laughs) You know, so that's a very simple thing where it's like, okay, on a rest day, you can still have your same structured meals, but maybe just omit that. Or if someone's having a little bit of something before their workout, let's say that someone was having a a bit of dried cereal or a granola bar or something, it's like, you know, you, you probably don't need that if you're gonna be sleeping for a little bit longer and then getting back into your normal rhythm of meals. Otherwise, if it was something, right, then they could always just put it later in the day too, but that's sometimes a circumstance. But I know for myself personally, I basically just keep things the same, same. Whether I'm in the improvement season or in a dieting phase, I kind of keep my macros and calories the same, whether it is a training day or a rest day. Cause I am one of those people who during that additional time where I'm not at the gym on a rest day, I'm gonna go out and move my body and do something that uh, is nice and active and it makes me feel really good. And I do find that generally body weight just kind of balances out. Mm. There we go then. <laughs> An example of both ends of the spectrum. 
myself yeah. and you. Yes, yeah, definitely both ends of the stick. All right, we are moving on to this next one. It says, what should I do the night before a morning session to maximize performance? So we could break this down nutritionally or in terms of lifestyle as well. There's a number of different ways we could go about this. But I think from a nutritional standpoint, like you, usually we do recommend front loading calories, especially if you do train more so in the anywhere from like mid morning onwards. But if you do train in the earlier stages of the morning, then potentially backloading a little bit of additional carbohydrates could be useful. So I would potentially do that depending on what your carbohydrate intake is. Obviously, if you're dieting and you're on 100 grams of carbs, there's only so much you can do. But if you've got the carbs to spare, then I would maybe have a few more in the evening. And aside from that, like it's also just comes down to recovering well, ensuring that you are setting aside enough time to sleep. So if you're waking up earlier to train, make sure you're going to bed earlier to fit in your eight hours or plus of sleep. And those would be my top two things. Yeah, I think sleep would be absolutely paramount, <laughs> especially if you're training really early in the morning. I would even say there too, like you'd want to be making sure that you're getting to sleep at a reasonable hour so that you can get, you know, athletes really require eight plus hours of sleep. And I wish that every human being on this planet could just experience what it's like and how good you can freaking feel when you get sufficient sleep every single night routinely but making sure that you are getting to bed at a reasonable hour. But even then, like, you know, when you first wake up in the morning, sure, sometimes you wanna bounce out of bed, but even then it's like, okay, I still need to wake up. Even though I'm excited for the day, I still need to wake up. So I think it's even important there to have a morning routine that gets you into a really good headspace, but also, you know, allows you sufficient time to just stimulate yourself in a sense. Like I wouldn't think that it would be pleasant at all to wake up at like 4 a.m. and then try to be out the door by 4.10 so that you can drive to the gym and then you get there at 4.30 and then you've only allocated yourself 45 minutes before you have to take a shower, eat your breakfast, then drive to work or something. Like if there's too much of a crunch time there, I think that it would actually be a little bit stressful. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think it just depends on what someone's schedule is, though. Some people don't have the luxury of having a lot of time. Mm. And like if, they, like if they've got kids, they can't exactly just keep going to bed earlier and wake up at three instead. Mm. So, yeah. But I, I agree to an extent. Like I always like to have... I have even more time than you. I, I kind of like my solid hour to mm. just have my usual routine where I have something to eat and drink and... And I think that's another aspect of when you do wake up, try and hydrate as best you can, mm. um, as early as you can. Yeah, yeah. The, the better, the more you're able to hydrate with the better, essentially, if you're, if you're waking up and then going to, to, uh, to the gym, especially if you haven't drunk anything for eight or nine hours straight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So man, I guess to answer this question, it really just is going to come down to a very good night's sleep, but then make sure that by the time you wake up, then you have sufficient time to get hydrated, get caffeinated, have a little bit of something to eat. And I would say, actually, if anything, the night before, make sure that you're organized and prepared so that first thing when you wake up in the morning, you don't have to run around and do these little things. Like you don't have to like prep your food for the day or like make your lunch or like do all these little tidbits around the house. Like I would go to bed in a state where it's like, 
awesome. Tomorrow I'm going to crush it because everything's set out. You could even go to the extent of like laying out your workout clothes or what I used to do, Jack, when I was in high school and I wanted to wake up and go for a run, especially when it was in the winter. And like, there's nothing worse than when it's really cold, it's pitch black outside. It's like 4:30 in the morning and you're like, okay, I, I promised myself I'm gonna do my 10Ks this morning, but like just getting out from under the covers, you're like, Brr. What I would do is I would actually sleep in my running gear, in my long sleeves, in my tights, have my socks on, everything, so that when I'd wake up first thing in the morning, all I had to do is go pee, brush my teeth, tie my hair in a ponytail. Sometimes my hair was even tied in a ponytail already. <laughs> but then it's legit, like have a big glass of water, you put on your shoes, get out of the house. So, do you do a fast and run? Uh, That's naughty. I, yeah. Well, you know, I, I was definitely a different girl when I was uh, 17 years old. But anyway, the main thing is be prepared. Even if it does come down to literally sleeping in the clothes that you want to wake up in the morning and uh, uh, get out the door in. But be prepared, be organized so that there's just minimal barriers that you can wake up to your alarm and then justify oh, do I really need to go to the gym? Do I really need to exercise this morning? There's literally no excuse. Everything is set. It just comes down to you. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, have a plan in place and execute. (laughs) Is there a question you would like us to answer on the podcast? If so, make sure to be following us on Instagram at The Bodybuilding Dietitians, where we release question polls on a regular basis. As well, Keep a lookout for our weekly informative posts on all things bodybuilding and nutrition, which are great references to save. And if you're a coach, share with your clients too. All right, this final question, it says, how did you come up with your logo for TBD? Yeah, that's a good question. I, it's quite a few years ago now. I don't think, I don't think too much in a good way. Like I don't mean this in a bad way. I don't think too much thought really went into it. I think it was a fairly logical reasoning behind a barbell with a knife and fork on one end and the two plates on the other. Man, you're always downplaying my good ideas. I'm pretty sure I came up with the idea. Oh, that is that is the biggest joke I've ever heard in my life. I have proof of being at UQ Sport on a freaking night shift and having like drawing all of these little doodles on the back of a receipt that someone, you know, bought a gym membership off or something. But I, I was trying to conjure up all these ideas for our logo. No offense, but I, I did make it up. Well, what, you still think that you made up the name of our business when I made that up. <laughs> okay. Anyway, but coming back to the logo, uh, no, I, I, I did have that idea and I will, you know, your standard logo for a lot of fitness brands is something to do with like a barbell, right? But I really like how everything is symmetrical and obviously just like even and laid out. You're wearing our TBD shirt right now. I can literally see it right in front of me, but you know, starting with kind of that barbell theme, but the thing is we're called the bodybuilding dietitians. So it needs to be 50, 50. You have to have that unison and also that combination of, of, okay, it's resistance training, but it's also nutrition at the same time. So when I was like, okay, 50% of the barbell can obviously be weight plates, but 50% of the barbell needs to represent something to do with food. And in these initial doodles, 
the, the TBD logo was half a barbell and the other side I was drawing like apples and bananas. I even drew a fish on one. <laughs> oh man, the irony. But then I was like, but what if someone's like, doesn't eat fruit or what if someone is a vegan and they don't eat fish? I'm like, we're already niched enough. We can't like be married to a specific food. So I'm like, okay, what symbolizes food? What symbolizes nutrition? What symbolizes eating? Ah, a knife and fork. There you go. I don't know who's going to argue with that unless they're like, I only eat with chopsticks. <laughs> so yeah, symbolizing it there. And then it symbolizes that it's 50-50. It's equal. It needs to be a combination of training and nutrition. And then once that was set, simply just putting the letters on the top and writing the bodybuilding dietitians down the bottom. And I worked alongside my sister, Kyla, who is, she does a lot of commission work for art. She's a fantastic artist and she's actually helped us design all of our logos in terms of the TBD logo. She helped us design the Aussie bodybuilding. She's helped us design even our podcast logo now that we use with like the animations. So Kyla and I have always gone back and forth. And of course I've paid her commissions for it, but it's just been so cool. So she's really helped us bring that to life. But yeah, that's kind of how we uh, started the TBD. <laughs> Initially it actually, before we had this logo though, if you go way back through the archives, remember it's just said TBD. I think, did we make it on paint? No, I think that was just for Facebook. Oh yeah, we literally had, I think, no, you made up that one. It was TBD and then it was just like a copy and pasted little thing of a mic. No, <laughs> I don't remember that. I do because I remember uploading our very first initial podcast episodes with that little photo. Yeah, but that's that's the podcast. That's different to the business. Yeah, but we that was just before we actually started the business. We did start the podcast before we actually started the legitimate business. It started off with that TBD and that little mic, and then it branched into TBD. And then Kyla drew us two little stick characters, each of like a bodybuilder and then like a bikini athlete. It was just like the outline. That was our logo for a while. <laughs> but then it branched into what we have now with TBD and you know, that's obviously stuck. And then I guess we changed the podcast logo after that to the animations where you and I are together, crossed arms, mm. what's up? They're not really animations though. They're just... What would you call them? Caricatures. Are we bobbleheads? Not really, no. <laughs> I'll let you guys decide. Are, are we bobbleheads on that photo? I think our heads look pretty big. Biceps look all right. Anyway, we're going to wrap up this podcast episode, but Jack, one thing I want to finish on is what's something that you learned this week? Yeah. So I've been uh, watching this uh, YouTube channel lately and getting down a bit of a rabbit hole with it, but it's, it's around uh, surviving in the wilderness, even though hopefully I never have to do that. Come on, spill the tea. <laughs> what's the channel called? <laughs> spill the tea. <laughs> The, uh, the channel's called uh, The Outdoor Boys. It's more of a sort of family vibe channel, but it's it's quite well done and set in Alaska. So as you can imagine, it snows bucket loads there. And yeah, one of the tips was if you do find yourself in the wilderness and you need to stay warm, that you actually kind of 
like you put a fire on the ground and ideally you want gravel or sand, but you basically do that until you get down to the, the earthy layer. There's no water. You burn away all the moisture in the water. You keep doing that until the ground is heated through completely. And then that retains the warmth for hopefully throughout the night. Whoa. I'm confused. So do you light a fire on top of snow and ice? No, you you dig down until you hit ground and then you light the fire and then burn it for hours until the ground is completely dry and until the soil or sand or gravel is heated through and then you let the fire burn out and then you sleep on top of it. (laughs) What the time frame though? How the heck long is this taking? (laughs) Yeah, it's taking hours. Well, it's, it's life or death situation though. Yeah, but you're literally still finding yourself in a hole. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> but the benefit of being in a hole as well is that the, the wind is blowing over you. It's not mm. blowing into you. Yeah. Well, just if you are in Alaska, make sure that this hole does have ground underneath. Because my dad used to do a lot of fisheries work in Alaska when he was growing up. During the college breaks, he would fly up to Alaska from California and he would do a whole bunch of marine biology work there. And one of his jobs was to actually drill holes in the ice, holes that were three meters deep. And then dad would jump down into the water and he would scuba dive under the ice in the pitch black. He just had a little flashlight and he would collect samples of the different aquatic life under there, under the ice. And then he would come back up. He was literally just attached to a rope with someone else on top of the ice so that he could be pulled back in. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's impressive. Yeah, terrifying. Do you, he's told me one of the scariest stories ever. If you're claustrophobic, maybe you shouldn't keep listening. But ultimately, dad would be, yeah, meters under the ice in the freaking Arctic Ocean. And one time, dad turned around and he saw this rope just being, just drifting off in the distance. And he was like, <gasps> And like he realized that the rope had become unattached to him and then he just saw the rope going away. So he turned around, he had his flashlight, he kept following this rope, right? Just imagine just something just going away into the pitch black and he didn't know where the hole was, but luckily he probably swam literally for his life, grabbed this rope and then kept following it and then the guy pulled him up again. And he was like, well, okay, but man, <laughs> just make sure that thing is like quadruple knotted around your waist. Jeez Louise, dad could have been trapped under the ice. Mm, forever. Terrifying, you know what? And I bet the next day he got down there and he did it again. Yep. <laughs> but so amazing. My parents actually, they met in Alaska. They met on an oil rig. Yeah, my mom, she actually went up there to work during the summer months. You're telling the other listeners. Oh, you and the listeners, anyone who's still listening. But my mom was actually one of the very first women to be allowed to work on an oil rig. And I believe this was like, maybe like very early 1980s. But she went up there and she met my dad and there were like 200 guys up there. And I think there was only two females. And heck, my dad, he he won her over. But uh, yeah, quite wild. Anyway, that's enough of Tierra's family stories. <laughs> what did you learn there? Oh, wow. Can't be that exciting, surely. <laughs> oh, I don't know. You could argue. It's definitely different. Uh, but what I learned this past week, actually yesterday indeed, was how to judge a bodybuilding show. So yesterday, WNBF Australia held their very first show 
finally here on Australian soil. And I had the opportunity to be a test judge and a learner judge on the panel. And that was just so neat to be able to really sit alongside these other international judges and learn how to judge a bodybuilding show. It was just such an incredible experience for me. So valuable as a coach, as an athlete. And I I really would love to absolutely do it again. I'll be competing with WNBF next year in season A in May, but in come season B, I would love to have the opportunity to actually sit on the judging panel and actually have my scores count toward the final results. Because yesterday I was basically just judging the show as a test judge. And then I would have my marks reviewed against the other judges scores and mine didn't count. But, you know, a lot of them did match up and, you know, you always feel like, yes, (laughs) especially when Joey's passing out all these little pieces of paper and let's say it's a big lineup of like 12 or 14 people. He's like, write down your top five or write down your top six. And they do multiple call outs. And then when I'd write down my top numbers and then you hand them all in, even though mine don't count, and then they call out that top call out, I'm like, yeah. I pick those guys <laughs> or when the top three winners come out, I'm like, yeah, that was my order. <laughs> it, uh, it's cool. It's like, I, I, I have a decent eye for this. You'd hope. Right. Mm. But it was really beneficial. It was so cool. I love the WNBF scorecards, the marking it's, it's amazing really. Like for example, for bodybuilders, you have two rounds, you're marking people based on their symmetry and then you're b- marking people based on their muscularity. And let's say that you have a really big lineup of different bodybuilders and everyone has their strengths and weaknesses, rather than just being like, oh, that's the best guy because I think so. (laughs) Like when you actually have to make it a bit more objective and put down marks, it's very interesting how things can start to balance out because first you go through the symmetry round and you'll mark everyone, let's say, you know, one through six, but then you go through the muscularity round and it's like, okay, sure. This guy had the best symmetry, but he actually doesn't have the best muscularity, but then you have to add up the scores and then you have to see, okay, what is actually the order of these athletes? But then it also allows you to be a bit subjective too. Cause let's say that, uh, someone had the best symmetry, but they had the second best muscularity vice versa. Someone had the best muscularity, but the second best symmetry, let's say that they both got a total score of three. Then you get to be a bit subjective and really watch them side by side. And then you're like, okay, who do I think is the best competitor up there on that stage? And who am I going to score as first place and second place? So there can be those sort of tiebreakers. So it was fantastic. It was amazing. It was so cool to sit in that seat and like literally have the best seats in the house, see athletes up that close. And it really makes you pay attention really, really does. So such valuable insight. And that's what I learned yesterday, how to judge a bodybuilding show. Mm, That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, It was very neat. Yeah. But I know you'll be on that judging panel soon because I know you didn't choose to do it yesterday because next year I'll be competing. And I guess you want to be a spectator. Plus you'll have a lot of clients at that show. Yeah. And then the season after you're going to be competing. So can't be a judge simultaneously. Maybe 2025. Mm, yeah, potentially. Yeah. I can see myself on the panel. Do you think you got a good eye for this sport? Uh, yeah, if I say so myself. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you know, guys, thanks so much for tuning in for today's episode. If you did enjoy it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD, and we'll catch you in the next one.